account of Israel's history continue. We are going to pick up the story tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 9, and we'll look all the way through 1 Samuel chapter 11. But to get us going, let me read in 1 Samuel 9, verse 15 through 21. It's what the Lord communicates to Samuel by way of this king that he has chosen after the people had requested a king, and we'll see even Saul's first response to what seems to be mysterious news. So follow along as I read verse 15 through 21, and do hear as the Lord speaks to you again through his powerful and true word. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come up to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. In the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them, for they have been found, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you that your word is truth and pray this night that you would sanctify us by this truth, that your spirit would open our eyes to behold wondrous realities, that we might meditate on your wonderful works, that we might see our King, Jesus Christ, seated at your right hand, in whom we can only find life, and we pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It was sometime in 2009, as the story goes, that a small coastal tribe in the nation of Ghana was searching for a new king. Their recent ruler had died, and according to their ancient tradition and custom, what they decided to do, and the tradition and custom mandated that they do, is they go outside the the, the leaders of the city, and they were to take a bottle of schnapps. They were to pour it on the ground. And then as that was poured on the ground, they begin to read the names of those relatives of the recently departed king. It just so happened that this king had 25 Names of relatives that were on the list. And as the tradition and custom went, whenever steam rose up from the place where the schnapps was poured, well then, the name being read at that precise moment was the new king. So this went according to the ancient ritual. And just as the steam rose up from the schnapps, the name of Peggy, one of the king's nieces, was read. Now, the only problem was is that Peggy couldn't be found in all the land. She was actually across the ocean in Washington, D.C., working in the Ghanaian embassy there in Washington. And as the Washington Post ran an article in the coming weeks, such was the reality of this strange and special news story, 
I said, the small city's newest king. Well, she does her own laundry. She drives a 1992 Honda Civic. She answers her own phone and her bosses, too. And the reason behind the article's revelry was kings are sometimes found among the strangest of people. Kings are sometimes found in the strangest of places. Two things that come forth in our passage tonight as we see Israel get their first king. And the reason for them getting a king was all what we looked at last week. If you were with us, it was in chapter 8 that they realized they were in the midst of a leadership crisis. And the simplicity of the crisis was found, if you glance back to verse 5 of chapter 8, they come to Samuel and they say, two things are problematic, Samuel. Behold, you are old. And number two, your sons do not walk in your ways. So here's the demand. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And you might find sympathy with Samuel when you recall that he was incensed at the request. A righteous anger seemingly rose up in his heart at this request that they needed a king. But the Lord went on to tell Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as their king. So you're going to go appoint them a king, Samuel. But what you must do before you do that is warn them about everything this king is going to take from them. And you might remember from last week, this king is going to come along and take everything, precious and dear, to everyone in Israel. And even after hearing all these warnings about what the king was going to take, the people still cry out, we want a king. So if you glance back to verse 22, how chapter 8 ended, the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So as we pick up the story tonight, we are in the exact same spot where the nation of Israel was at that time after demanding a king. They're waiting for that king to show up. Uh, They're waiting for that king to be identified. And he's going to show up, he's going to be identified, and he's actually going to fight in his first battle in our text tonight. And along the way, we're going to see a number of things about how the Lord providentially, surprisingly, and even somewhat tragically, moves among his people as he grants their request for a king. That's going to show us something, no doubt, by the end of our text, how we see the Lord Jesus Christ as the king that we all so desperately need. So the simple theme that I have for us tonight is a king for the people. We're going to look at our three chapters and four movements as it flows along rather simply. So four movements, and then I'm going to give you two simple observations about kingship as it's now finally instituted in redemptive history. So the first movement is what comes in chapter 9, and it's a king revealed. Because we can notice, if you just glance at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 9, that there's a pivotal change in the narrative. And the reason we know that is because a genealogy shows up. And as so often is the case in Old Testament books, genealogies show up to introduce pivotal changes Significant shifts in the story and this genealogy belongs, you'll notice in verse 1, to a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. The end of verse 1 tells us he's rather wealthy. Verse 2 tells us he has a son named Saul. And look at what verse 2 tells us about his appearance. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. You know, if there was 
an ancient Mr. Israel contest. That's as though the narrator is signaling Saul would win. He would have been the favorite and forerunner. This is what you need to see right from the outset. He looked kingly according to worldly standards. More handsome than anyone else. Taller than anyone else. But he starts off well enough because the text goes on to tell us that his dad loses some donkeys. And the text tells us that that Saul, it's hard to know exactly how old he was at this time, probably close to 40. He, He obeys his father's desire, his father's desire to go find these donkeys, which is in striking opposition to what we had seen the leaders of previous sons in this book. Because what had we seen about Eli? He had sons who were worthless and wicked. We saw Samuel. Sadly, even last week, didn't we, in chapter 8, he had rebellious and sinful sons. And here's now another son showing up named Saul, who seems to be obedient to his Father, and however obedient he was, it proves to be, he proves to be rather unsuccessful in his searching. They can't find the donkeys after a three days worth of searching. You'll notice verse 6, his servant says, well, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true, so now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. And as the narrative develops, it's quite clear that that Saul has no understanding of this great prophet and judge in the land named Samuel, which is its own blinking warning about the state of this kingly-looking man's spirituality. He has no idea about God's prophet in the land. But you'll notice as the text continues, he begins to go up. Look at verse 10. Saul said to his servant, well, well said, let's go find this guy. Come on up, let's go. And so they went to the city where the man of God was. Verse 11, they went up to the hill of the city. Glance over to verse 14. So they went up to the city, What you would find out in verse 22. He goes up to a dinner. And in verse 25, he goes up to a place on a roof where he's going to sleep at night. There's this very noticeable ascent to the man who would be proclaimed king. There's this noticeable, if we can say it this way, ascension happening in in Saul's life. And surely it's calling out something of of an echo of the true king of Israel who would come in redemptive history. He who was, of course, eternally the son of God, who was obedient unto the point of death. He came down, didn't he, taking the form of a servant. And when it became time for Jesus Christ to be proclaimed as king, you remember, he began to go up, didn't he? up on a cursed cross, up on the clouds, up to the right hand of the Ancient of Days in heaven. Saul is going up. And he didn't know that the day before he arrived in the city that God had said something to this prophet he knew nothing about. That's where we began our reading. If you'll notice once again, verse 16, Yahweh said to Samuel, about this time tomorrow I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come up to me. And surely it's vital for us to notice here that everything happening in Samuel in Saul's life is that hidden hand of God's providence orchestrating the outcome. Looking back on it with the lens of the Spirit's 
inspiration. Why is it that donkeys go missing? Why is it that it just so happens a servant who is with Saul knows Samuel is in a nearby city? Why is it that Samuel just happens to be in that city, in the near vicinity of where Saul is? Because, of course, God was working everything to bring about that purpose of the first king in Israel. And how many of us need that common reminder that any time we might face, like Saul, even these frustrations in ordinary parts of our life that tend to sometimes embitter us against God's providence? Uh, What are we realizing, of course, or ought to be realizing, that His promise is driving us in a certain direction? Sometimes that providence of God is driving us away from something. Sometimes it's driving us towards something. And here in Saul's life, it's driving him toward kingship. Because he comes and meets Samuel. And you'll notice what Samuel says in verse 20 and 21. He says, well, Saul, as for your donkeys, they were found three days ago. Don't worry about them anymore. And for what is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house. Perhaps you can understand why then in the next verse, Saul is wondering what exactly Samuel was talking about. I'm just the least of the tribes in Israel. I'm a Benjaminite. Even my clan is the least of all the Benjaminites. Uh, what, are, what are you talking to me about? Well, if you just kind of scan your eyes through the next few verses, there's a dinner that comes later this night. and Saul goes up to the hotel roof where he sleeps. The next morning, Samuel wakes him up. And says it's time to depart from the city. And notice verse 27. As they were going to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. So a king has been revealed. But now it comes, of course, in chapter 10, to find a king anointed. Because students, you can picture the scene. You've got Saul and his servant walking out towards the city. And it's almost as though Samuel grabs him by the back of his cloak and says in his ear, outside of the hearing of the servant, Hey, let him go on. I want to tell you what Yahweh has to say to you. And it's not just what Yahweh has to say. It's something even Samuel does. Notice verse 1 of chapter 10. Immediately, evidently, Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you? to be prince over his people Israel. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this is the sign that shall be to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And if you glance through the next few verses, Samuel gives him three specific signs that are are getting ready to happen that day. These signs are meant to confirm the Lord's appointment. The Lord's anointing of Saul to be king. You'll notice in verse 2, he says, you're going to meet two men by Rachel's tomb. And they're going to ask you about these donkeys. Verse 3, you'll notice three men are going to come up to you at Bethel. They're going to give you bread. They're going to give you drink. Verse 5 and 6 say, you're going to meet these prophets of the Lord, coming singing and dancing. Verse 6, the Lord and his spirit will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them And you will be turned into another man. This is exactly what's going to happen, Saul. So that you would know you are meant to be king. And of course, it's exactly what happens. You'll notice what happens according to verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. 
And it's an important word that you need to recognize there. All these signs came to pass that day. Another way you can say the same thing. God's word was true. God's word came to pass in Saul's life. Everything that God said he was going to do, God did. And students, I trust that you're growing in that same principle of the trustworthiness of God's word. Everything God's word says is true. It's absolutely true. Which sometimes is the most terrifying thing you can ever hear. That if you are outside of Jesus Christ and reject God's word and remain in unbelief, it's terrifying to hear what God says belongs to the punishment of sinners. That will come true if you don't turn from your sin. But if you belong to Jesus, know that it's one of the most comforting things that you can hear. That every one of his promises towards you is true. Every one of his assurances and comforts that he's given to you in his word, it will come true. Just as these signs came true in Saul's life. And so he has this other heart. He's prophesying. It generates actually a saying in Israel. Notice verse 11 and 12. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? And therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? Maybe the best way you can render that somewhat common saying in Israel, is Saul also among the prophets? It'd be something like we say, well, once in a blue moon, something happens. But I would want to focus, verse 12, your attention on, and who is their father? It's a way in which this man who goes unidentified in verse 12 is saying, wait, so who exactly is Saul's father? This is not the Saul of Kish that we know. And it's a seemingly subtle thing that the author in 1 Samuel is doing along the way with this development of the monarchy. Because so often what we've already seen and will continue to see is how certain sons of certain fathers are coming into the family or as it were, leaving the family. What do I mean? Well, what you see with Eli, he has wicked sons. And a son named Samuel comes into his family almost as though he's now adopted as a son. Well, the, the same thing actually is seemingly happening here with Saul and Samuel. Samuel's got sons, they're wicked, and Saul comes into the family, and as the chapters progress, it seems as though they almost have a father-son kind of relationship. Do you know what happens with Saul and David? David seemingly comes into the household, the royal palace, and becomes something of a son, like a brother with Jonathan. And isn't it leading forward as first in 2 Samuel develop to this man named David that God's going to adopt, going to appoint, going to choose as his covenantal king through whom the line of grace and kingship is always going to run. But again, you'll see something about the concern related to Saul's spirituality. Verse 16 of chapter 10, he comes home. Saul told his uncle that this man Samuel plainly told us that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken. He did not tell him anything. So he's not eager to speak up of this news that has come from the Lord. So the king has been appointed. Now we want to see in the back half of chapter 10, we want to see a king proclaimed. Because after about a week has passed when he left Samuel, Samuel arrives for these sacrifices. You'll notice at Mizpah in verse 18, he reminds them of God's grace, his redemption, 
of, of bringing them out of exile, bondage, and slavery there in Egypt. But notice again the warning of verse 19 in chapter 10. He says, Today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves to the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So it's time for the king's sorting. And you'll notice in the next few verses, it goes according to that ancient tradition of casting lots. So they begin to cast lots. The tribe of Benjamin is chosen. They cast lots to see which clan of Benjamin is chosen. And the text tells us it's the clan of the Matrites. And they begin to cast lots. Which person from the family of Matri is going to be king? And you'll notice verse 21, Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And what's altogether humorous, and I genuinely think it would be funny if it wasn't so sad, if you understand the sweep of this story. Israel finally gets the king that they wanted. And look at the end of verse 21. When they sought him, he couldn't be found. And you notice the next verse, the Lord speaks in their hearing, hey, he's hiding among the luggage. Go find him. This is the king you wanted. One who's hiding among the suitcases. It's rather ironic, I think, in many ways, as Israel said that they wanted a king, which was their way of denying the Lord's kingship over their lives. Do you see how utterly dependent they are in this entire process of the king that they want? How God is not just guiding every single step, he's guiding every single human, he's guiding every single decision to bring about this king that they so desperately want. And when Saul is found, guess what they revel in? He looks like a king. Look again, verse 23. They ran and took him from the baggage, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And I wonder if there's a tone of irony we're meant to hear in verse 24 when Samuel says, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. You'll notice not everyone's happy. The chapter ends with verse 27. Some worthless fellow said, How can this man save us? And that's why we include chapter 11 in this relatively expansive meditation on three chapters. Can this man save us? Well, in this fourth movement, the king was revealed, appointed, and proclaimed. Well, movement number four is that a king is defended. Because, kids, the story of verse, I'm sorry, chapter 11 is relatively simple, isn't it? It's old, an Old Testament battle scene. You'll, you'll notice in verses 1 through 4, the Ammonites come against Jabesh-Gilead. They offer this just despicable threat, don't they, in verse 2 at the end, that we're going to gouge out all your right eyes and bring disgrace on all of Israel. Weeping goes up in the land. Saul hears about uh, the weeping. And here's about the threat upon Jabesh-Gilead, these people in the promised land. Look at verse 6 of chapter 11, the Spirit of God. And again, it rushes upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Who's going to save God's people from the threat of the Ammonites? Well, he sends out a warning to all of the tribes. And you'll notice as the next few verses spin forth that Saul is able to gather for himself 330,000 fighting men in Israel. 
to come against the Ammonites. And he wipes the battlefield with him. You'll notice what verse 11 tells us. The next day, Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning and watched and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Do you think this king can save us? Some worthless fellows said. The first military encounter reveals, yeah, this king can save us. So you see what the people in Israel want to do with those worthless fellows that had asked the question. Look at verse 12. Who is it that said, Saul shall reign over us? Bring them that we may put them to death. Saul says, no, there's no executions required. The end of verse 13, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And that chapter closes, this scene in Saul's life closes with the people rejoicing and the people renewing the kingdom. They have a king these people that had desperately longed for a leader. So two observations. You have four movements. You have a king who's revealed, a king who's anointed, a king who's proclaimed, and a king who's defended. Let me give you two simple observations about kingship. Because what you need to know is that this is the moment kingship is introduced in redemptive history. The first thing you need to notice is that a king after the people's heart has arrived. It's rather striking if you turn back to chapter 9, and you find out that Kish has a son named Saul. And the reason it's striking is because the name Saul just means asked for. So we're meant to see as the story spins forth, this is the king you asked for. You wanted this King, you wanted a king like the nations. You wanted a king of strength. I gave you a king who's taller than everyone else. You wanted a king who'd be regal like the nations. I gave you one more handsome than anyone else. You wanted a king who would deliver you. I gave you a king who won a resounding victory on your first battle with him. This is the king you wanted. But of course, as we're going to soon see, this is not the king that they needed. He's not a king that's going to prove faithful. He doesn't know God's word. He doesn't know God's prophet. He won't speak God's truth to even his family. Soon he's going to fall. Soon the people are going to realize the deliverer that they wanted is not the deliverer that they needed. And maybe you know how so many people in the world in which we live want a deliverer. That's not the one that they need. They want to deliver on their own terms. They want to deliver according to their own ideals. They want to deliver who just so happens to match their ambitions and desires. And the tragic thing that I said earlier about God's providence is sometimes he gives people a king after their own heart. A king that will only lead them to death and destruction. But the good news is not just the observation that a king after the people's heart has arrived, but the king of God's heart is coming. Soon David's going to be said to be a king after God's own heart. But it's it's noticeable even how this story points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ because this king Saul, he arrives in the land and immediately the people are divided over him. It's almost as though they say, can anything good come out of Gibeah where Benjamin lives? They said of Jesus, didn't they? Can anything good come out of Galilee? 
The last place you would have thought to find a king in Israel was from the tribe of Benjamin, the clan of the Matrites. And yet here comes Saul. Yet if the Old Testament people who are hearing this story for the first time knew their Old Testament well, they would know that kings were actually going to come forth from Benjamin. That was actually prophesied in Genesis chapter 35. But by the end of Genesis chapter 49, we find out that the scepter of royalty, the scepter of kingship, it's always going to remain in Judah, not Benjamin. And what changes in between those two prophecies is that Judah is willingly laying down his life to be the substitute for Benjamin. A substitute king was coming from Judah, is what the Old Testament is saying. And so it's why First and Second Samuel begin to go on this narrative. Saul to David. Benjamin to Judah. Pointing us forward to a king who would likewise divide the nations. A king over whom the nations continue to rage. A king who's the willing substitute for sinners to take the place of faithless Benjaminites. The least of these who are so often prone to sin and wander into iniquity. A king who's not a king after our own heart. But the king of God's own heart. uh, Jesus Christ. Who is the king to whom we must live. Let's pray together. Father, we are longing that you would grow our understanding of your word that in so doing you would increase our adoration of Jesus Christ, our great King. So help us even this week by your Spirit to cast off those sinful kings and rulers that we have created, even those that we follow, uh, that we might know the true King of kings and the life found in his name. And we do pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.